0: Today on Something You Should Know, if antioxidants are good, are more antioxidants better? Uh, no. Then, very practical ways to noticeably improve how well you think, starting
1: with more sleep. Adults need seven to nine hours sleep a night. And I know all kinds of people, I'm sure you do as well, that say they get by just fine on five or six hours sleep. That's what they're doing, they're getting by. They are not performing at their cognitive best, Plus, the surprising answer to the question, what makes a woman
0: beautiful? And are we too obsessed with efficiency today? Probably so.
2: The shortest way to say it is trying to be too efficient in the short run will make us less efficient in the long run. Sometimes the pursuit of efficiency ignores some elements of quality that are hard to measure.
0: All this today on Something You Should Know. something you should know fascinating intel the world's top experts and practical advice you can use in your life today something you should know with mike carruthers hi welcome You know, almost every day I get an email from at least one person asking for information about something they heard in the podcast, either a book written by one of my guests or something else they heard. They want to know what the source of that information is. And while I'm happy to oblige, all of that information is in the show notes that accompany this episode, wherever it is posted. And even if you can't find it for some reason where it's posted, it's always on the website. The website has every episode in reverse chronological order, the newest episode on top, and all of the information is listed right there with the audio. And the website address is somethingyoushouldknow.net. First up today, if you take antioxidants, that must be a good thing, right? Uh, not necessarily. Not necessarily. Some nutrition experts say that we're totally overdoing it in the antioxidant department. Antioxidants are friendly molecules that go to work on evil free radicals, and that's all good. But as with anything, too much of a good thing can leave your body working too hard to process it all. Flooding your body with antioxidants, especially in supplement form, could do you more harm than good. Now, antioxidants have been credited with helping to prevent all sorts of problems from aging, vision loss, cancer, heart disease, and stroke. But how much they actually help is still up for debate. Consumers gobble up products containing the buzzword antioxidant, and the nutritional supplement industry really loves that. But just remember that there is no evidence that they actually cure anything, and the best way to get them is naturally in the food you eat. And that is something you should know. Who wouldn't want to be smarter? Imagine if you could think better, make decisions better, and just get through life with more brain power to navigate all you have to do in a smarter, more thoughtful way. Well, meet David Bardsley. David became a dentist and oral surgeon after overcoming some serious learning disabilities when he was younger. When he retired from surgery, he began researching and lecturing on the topic of cognitive performance. And he is the author of a book called Smarter Next Year, the revolutionary science for a smarter, happier you. Hey, David, welcome to Something You Should Know. It's my pleasure, Mike. So before we begin about making uh, people better cognitively speaking, if I do all the things you're about to tell me, how much smart? I mean, how much is it worth the effort? Are we just going to move the needle in the laboratory, or am I going to go? Gee, I feel like i my brain is really functioning better.
1: Well, that depends on where you are now. If you're already doing these things, then you know doing them uh, uh, with a little more gusto will move the needle a little bit. But if you're not already doing any of these things, you can have a very, very significant increase in that cognitive ability. And most people that I find that I know of are not doing these things or they're not doing them to to the degree that's necessary if you want that cognitive improvement.
0: When people hear conversations about cognitive ability and brain function... I think there's a tendency to think, well, this only applies to older people, to people as they're getting on in years, and maybe their brain starts to decline. Is this an
1: older person problem? The Center for Disease Control in the United States estimates that by age 40, 4-0, that 50% of the population start to show some signs of what's called mild cognitive impairment. And mild cognitive impairment is that's they're the first steps toward more severe cognitive impairment and ultimately, you know, with dementia and Alzheimer's. Now, not everyone, not everyone who has mild cognitive impairment by any means will progress into uh, more serious forms of dementia and Alzheimer's. But what we do know is that 100 percent of the people with Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia started way back here with mild cognitive impairment. And that's why it's so important to either prevent it or deal with it at that very early stage. So, but what does that mean, mild
0: cognitive impairment? Does that mean I forgot where I put my keys or does that mean I can't do math or what is my, uh, give me an example of mild cognitive impairment.
1: You know, if 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 you if you notice a song comes on and oh yeah, this is um oh I recognize this song. This is uh oh don't tell me I know who it is. It's on it's uh, it's it's on the tip of my tongue. And, and and you find you just can't make that connection to that to that information. It's a sign of, of cognitive impairment. Or you might feel overwhelmed. You know, perhaps someone is pressing you to make a decision on something and and you're not quite sure. And you know, it's it just seems like there are so many Facts and, and information to try to make that decision and it just seems overwhelming and and, and you procrastinate. So you don't make decisions as quickly and, and you're not as nearly as confident in those decisions.
0: Again, a lot of what you just described we tend to associate with decline in brain function as you get older. So if it's happening in younger and younger people, what's
1: causing it? Well, sleep deprivation is huge absolutely huge. We are a sleep-deprived nation. And adults, with rare exception, need seven to nine hours sleep a night. And I know all kinds of people, I'm sure you do as well, that say they get by just fine on five or six hours sleep. And they're absolutely correct. That's what they're doing. They're getting by. They are not performing at their cognitive best. One of the simplest things there is to do in psychology is to test that cognitive decrease that, that occurs with sleep deprivation. If if you have just one night of disturbed sleep, you will have a measurable decrease in your cognitive ability the next day. And the military have done the best studies I've ever seen. The military studies are fantastic. And they show that if you, if you take a group of military personnel of mixed ages and you deprive them of sleep, for, first of all, you give them a cognitive test and then you deprive them of sleep for 24 hours, and then you retest them, they will have a decrease of 30% in those test scores. Now, most of us are never deprived of sleep for 24 hours straight, but those same military studies show if you take that same group of personnel of mixed ages, you administer the cognitive test, and now you deprive them of sleep so that they get six or less hours sleep for five consecutive nights, and then you retest them, now they have a decrease of 60% in those test scores. It's, it's one of the simplest things that we can do to make sure that we're functioning at 100% of our cognitive ability is to get that 7 to 9 hours sleep every night. Well, I think
0: everybody can relate to that. I know I can relate to that. If I don't get a good night's sleep, I know, I, I just know I don't perform as well the next day. So what else? What else besides getting more and better sleep?
1: one of the big factors is side effects of medication and not just over-the-counter medication but prescription medications as well. So many prescription medications have cognitive slowing as a side effect and some of the, you know, extremely, extremely common ones like statins, you know, drugs that are used to lower blood cholesterol and one out of four adult Americans, 25%, of the adult population in the United States takes a statin on a daily basis. A lot of anti anticoagulants, antidepressants have a negative cognitive side effect to them. So, you know, our goal, everybody's goal should be to be medication free. And it, that's, look, it's not possible for everybody, but for the majority of people, it is possible. And if you can't be medication free, you want to at least be able to reduce that medication you know to a minimal level to get the desired effect and and that's so many of the medications are due to our poor lifestyle choices that's why we're on them to begin with okay what else well you're not going to want to hear this most people don't alcohol is not a friend of your brain and your cognitive ability we can grow human brain cells human neurons in a, in a petri dish in a lab And add just one little drop of alcohol and instantaneously 100% of those brain cells will shrivel up and die. Now, we can't say that that happens in a living brain because we have no means yet of putting a miniature imaging device into a living brain so we can actually watch uh, that interaction take place. But you can drink a certain amount of alcohol and it will never get into your brain all the alcohol that you consume will first go to your liver and your liver has an enzyme which breaks down the alcohol into two substrates A and B that get excreted in your urine. If you present too much alcohol to your liver, then the alcohol, the liver doesn't have the capacity to break down that volume of alcohol. Some of it will be broken down. Some of it will pass through unchanged. It gets into your bloodstream, and in 30 seconds, it's crossed that blood-brain barrier, and it's in your brain, and you will feel the buzz. So if you feel the buzz, you know that you've exceeded your liver's capacity to detoxify that alcohol, and that alcohol has gotten into your brain and it's not doing you any favor, believe me. And let's face it, you know, people will often say, oh, they they love Gocasa wine because it tastes so good. Most people drink because they want the buzz.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I suppose suppose they do. Uh, David Bardsley is my guest. He is author of a book called Smarter Next Year, The Revolutionary Science for a Smarter, Happier You. something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. So David, because people like the buzz, is there an acceptable level of drinking where it doesn't affect your brain?
1: Yes, there is. And that depends on the individual. So generally people who, who would have one drink a day, and a drink is is considered... Uh, uh, you know, like two ounces of, of, um, hard liquor or, or six ounces of wine or one beer that that doesn't have any negative effect whatsoever. In fact, there are some studies that show that it actually has, has a positive effect, but it's different. You can't just take those exact numbers because it's different. A hundred and five pound woman can't, can't break down the same amount of alcohol as a two hundred and fifty pound man. So that two hundred and fifty pound man can consume more alcohol without it ever getting to his brain than a hundred and five pound woman can.
0: What else? I, I'm gonna I'm gonna imagine that stress has a lot to do with this.
1: Huge absolutely huge floods your body with two primary stress hormones cortisol and adrenaline and they have a negative effect on your cognitive ability. So anything that you can do to reduce the amount of stress is is good anything that you can do and I tell people if they have significant stress or anxiety of depression the best thing to do is to get some professional help. Uh, okay what else? Well one of the very biggest ones is exercise. And, and I shouldn't say exercise, it's the lack of exercise that leads to the cognitive impairment, the lack of movement. So physical activity, vigorous physical activity is truly the rifle shot to improving your cognitive ability. There are now thousands of studies, not hundreds, but thousands. I've read over 500 myself, studies that show the improvement in cognition that occurs with vigorous physical activity. And it has to be has to be vigorous. Unfortunately, a, a walk around the block with your dog isn't considered vigorous physical activity. And that physical activity does two things. It stimulates the growth of new brain cells, which we only discovered 20 years ago could occur. For 100 years before that, neuroscience taught that when a brain cell dies, that's it. It's gone forever. You don't grow new brain cells. But 20 years ago, they discovered for the first time that, in fact, we can grow new brain cells, and we can stimulate the growth of those new brain cells. And the single best way of doing it is vigorous physical activity.
0: So if I vigorously run to the liquor store and... Um...
1: <laughs> That's, and you vigorously run back.
0: What else? Uh, does diet ma- matter much in terms of what you eat or don't eat? And is it more what you eat or what you don't
1: eat? You know, 30 years ago, it was fat. Fat was the enemy. So anything you could do to lower the fat content of your diet, we thought was better. And now the science showing that that's not true, that it's really hyperglycemia. It's really high blood sugar that will have that negative effect because that sets up inflammation. The end products of the sugar metabolism will set up inflammation everywhere in your body, including your brain. And actually now, and it produces this insulin resistance, and now, in the science, they're referring to Alzheimer's really as type 3 diabetes. Your brain normally uses sugar as its primary sort of fuel. But if if you give your body so little sugar that there's not enough, then your body will selectively start to use fats which are known as ketones or ketone bodies, and it will start to metabolize those fats. And a lot of people find their brain works much, much better if it uses these ketones or fat as a fuel rather than sugar.
0: So generally a healthy diet is what we consider, you know, lots of fruits and vegetables, not a lot of sugar, um, that kind of thing is, is, is a good brain diet as well.
1: Half of what you said, I would agree with lots of, lots of vegetables, not lots of fruits. Fruits are very, very high in fructose, which is a simple sugar that raises your blood sugar dramatically. Our grandparents and our great grandparents didn't have access to fruit 365 days a year. They only had fruit when it, when it, when it was, when it was available in season
0: Often in these discussions about mental decline and cognitive ability, particularly when it comes to older people, you hear the phrase, use it or lose it, that older people need to exercise their brain by doing crossword puzzles and other uh, mental exercises, that that, that will help. W- w- what do you say? What, what's the science say?
1: Well, there have, been, there have been a tremendous number of studies done And they haven't for the most part, some some have some show positive benefits, but most show that there's no significant uh, increase if you if you purposely stimulate your brain during crossword puzzles or Sudoku or, or, you know, some some of the commercially available ones like luminosity and whatnot. And so. Those things are absolutely not detrimental, and I would never discourage people from doing those. But you don't want to hang your hat on that as being the salvation for your mental acuity for the rest of your life, because the studies show that they just don't make a significant difference overall. I wonder
0: how much of this has to do with attention and intention. In other words, if I put my keys down and go back and look for them later and I can't find them— I don't know that that's necessarily a cognitive problem as much as it was an attention problem. When I put the keys down, I probably wasn't paying attention to where I put them. I wasn't real intentional about it. So when I go look for my keys, I can't find them. But the next time, when I'm careful where I put my keys, the next time I know exactly where they are and I find them easily. So. I wonder if in this discussion about cognitive function, that a lot of cognitive function has to do with what you pay attention to.
1: Oh, well, that's, that's, that's a big part of it. We tend to remember things that are important to us. And we tend not to remember things that aren't important. So if, if you just walked in the house and you flipped your keys on the nearest table and you start talking to someone, you may not remember where you left those keys. It wasn't important, you just flipped them somewhere. But if you walked in and said, okay, I've got to be out of here in exactly 15 minutes, you know, I'm gonna put my keys right over here. So, I, you know, and, and you make a conscious effort, I'm gonna put them right here. You'll probably remember where those keys are. We remember things that are important to us. So because little, you know, because you misplace something, you know, I, I tell people don't you know don't don't get all bent out of shape over that. That's not critical at all. And people will often say to me, well, you know, I have a terrible, I can't remember names. It's so it's so embarrassing, you know, and I'm worried about it. And I ask them, well, could you ever remember names? We, could you remember names twenty years ago or thirty years ago? And they say, no, I've been terrible all my life at remembering names. Well, there's no change. So what we're looking for it is a change. If you were good at something. And now you're not. You know, that's the change that becomes worrisome. If you were never good at it in the first place and you're still no good at it, then don't worry about it. There's been no significant decrease. That's
0: good to hear. I've never been good at math. I'm still not good at math. And uh, But I've never been good at math, so I'm not going to worry about that.
1: I'm in the same boat as you, Mike. It's never <laughs> been my forte. <laughs>
0: So what's the big thing, and I think I know what you're going to say, but so what's the big thing? If you want your brain to work better, what's the one thing you should do right now today to make it better?
1: If I had to say one single thing, it's physical movement, vigorous physical activity, and it has to be vigorous. It's the only known thing that stimulates the growth of new brain cells It stimulates the interconnection between existing brain cells, and it increases and balances the, what are called, neurotransmitters, which are the chemicals that let the electrical impulse travel from one brain cell to another.
0: It does seem that so much of the conversation about brain function and your cognitive ability is focused around people in their later years, and yet, from what you're saying... It seems that if people paid attention to this and implemented this stuff earlier in life and in midlife, that it would go a long way to help prevent some of the problems rather than trying to fix problems that show up later in life. David Bardsley has been my guest. The name of his book is Smarter Next Year, The Revolutionary Science for a Smarter, Happier You. And you'll find a link to his book in the show notes. Thank you, David.
1: Thanks for being here. My pleasure, indeed, Mike. Thank you so much. While
0: it's hard to argue with the idea of being efficient and productive, in some ways, it doesn't seem like it's working very well. We use all these systems and gadgets to be more efficient, and then when we become more efficient, it seems that the goal is to then become even more efficient. It's never enough. And there seems to be this belief that efficiency equals better. That getting more done in less time is always a good thing. Well, maybe, but really, efficiency just means quicker. And maybe quicker isn't always better. Edward Tenner certainly believes that. Edward is a distinguished scholar at the Smithsonian's Lemelson Center for the study of invention and innovation. And he has a long career as a teacher and a writer. His latest book is called The Efficiency Paradox. Welcome, Dr. Tenner. Hi, Mike. So, in a few words, what is the efficiency paradox?
2: The shortest way to say it is that trying to be too efficient in the short run will make us less efficient in the long run. And why is that? It's because real efficiency in the long run depends on all kinds of accidents and mistakes, and learning from them in the short run. And if we try to systematize everything, we get the feeling that everything is running smoothly, but actually sometimes it's those uneven moments that eventually help us make a breakthrough.
0: So maybe some examples would help to explain the problem and also the solution here.
2: Yes. Well, I think everybody's had the experience of taking a wrong turn somewhere or taking another route and really discovering something in a city or in the countryside that they didn't really realize that was there. And very often those have led to some of the best opportunities. I remember one occasion I got a call from John Kennedy Jr., who edited a magazine called George, a political magazine that I would never have thought of contributing to. And he had been in a bookstore in New York looking for another book, and he saw my book, Why Things Bite Back, and he really liked it, and he wanted me to write for the magazine, which I did. Now it turns out that there are fewer and fewer bookstores in New York, and maybe that one uh, is not there now. So you could say that it's more efficient to buy your books online, to see proposals for other books that would interest you because you had been interested in a certain book. But a site like that, while it's efficient in giving you more of what you've been interested in, is a little too efficient because it doesn't really give you that kind of peripheral vision that says, hey, wait a minute, this is something kind of intriguing. I want to look into that.
0: And so, how are we? pushed into being too efficient? What are the things that are going on in the world that that keep pushing us to do more in less time and get it done and not, you know, look in our peripheral vision, but to stay focused straight ahead?
2: One of the big reasons is that efficiency is a movement. By that I mean that people pursue efficiency on the assumption that pursuing efficiency is really going to make us more efficient. Now, that seems to be very reasonable. You want to do something, you want to to set goals. But there is a paradox there, and that is that we don't really have a lot of big data on big data. That is, we don't necessarily know for sure how very efficient some of these things are. I'll give you one example. Electronic medical records were supposed to be something that would relieve doctors of routine work, would them more time with patients, would eliminate errors. And some of these things they may have done, but what people didn't foresee is that in order to pursue this efficiency, physicians and their staffs had to spend more and more time meticulously entering records into a format that would be suitable for this electronic medical records. And now the medical journals have articles about doctor burnout and how the cost of paperwork has really increased as a result of this. So it's not so clear whether electronic medical records as implemented so far have made us more efficient. Now, does that mean that I'm against electronic medical records? No. But what I'm saying is that if we're not very careful Programs that are designed to improve efficiency may really undermine it. And we can't assume that just because something promises efficiency that in practice it's going to deliver it.
0: So how do you know? How do you know if you're pushing the limits of efficiency or whether you're just being smart and efficient?
2: I think it's more a matter of balance. I think it's it's a matter of using our intuition to counterbalance algorithms, and vice versa, that we we shouldn't necessarily depend on our intuition. There are books that show how intuition has been very, very wrong. But as I cite in the book, there are other books that have warned against too much criticism of intuition, because very often intuition results from something that we really know but can't articulate very well, and we have to learn how to listen to that.
0: So I understand, and and I agree with you, and I'm all on board that, that, that maybe we need to use our intuition a little more, maybe slow down, stop and smell the roses, that kind of thing. But I also like the fact that I have all these things, mainly on my phone, that make me more efficient.
2: Yes, I do, too, and I I use them, but uh, to give you one example, I use a GPS program called Waze, W-A-Z-E, which is now owned by Google. And I started out as a critic of Waze. I pointed out, for example, how Waze sometimes leads to cars taking routes through residential neighborhoods and disturbing people and, and causing all kinds of complications. And I also pointed out that sometimes people using GPS are led down almost literally the garden path. They can go onto boardwalks. They can go onto railroad tracks. In one case in England, there is a picture of a van that went down a narrow street, and the street was so narrow that the van got wedged in toward the end. So That problem has been happening when I discovered something else, that Waze, if you're not really conscious of where you are, if you're just depending on this as a kind of autopilot, will occasionally send you in the wrong direction. So once I was going south on the Garden State Parkway in New Jersey, and Waze told me to go north. And I had to ask myself, does Waze know of some kind of, big traffic emergency and redirecting me, or is it more likely that Waze is wrong? And I guess that Waze was probably wrong, and I actually, later when I was in a safe spot, tried to see whether there was some problem that Waze had anticipated and was rerouting, because it sometimes does that. But in this case, it didn't. It was just wrong. So every once in a while, it might be only one-tenth of one percent of the time A program like that can make a mistake, but the problem is that that little mistake, very occasionally, can turn out to be a huge mistake. So we can take advantage of the program, but we also have to recognize that all of these things have their hidden glitches, and it's our intuition that helps us guard against them.
0: Yeah, well, with Waze, though, (laughs) you don't know what you don't know. If if Waze tells you to go north when you think you should go south well you don't know unless you went south what ways is rooting you around so uh, i have found that when i disregard ways i usually regret it because they were usually right so but 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 there's there's no way of knowing every time whether it was right or wrong
2: it does work that's why i still use it most of the time it does work i'm just giving you a few times when it was when it was wrong and uh... i i actually did disregarded the other day and I was sorry that I disregarded it so the problem can happen uh, in, in, uh, in, in either direction but there was another time when it it told me to go on a certain route and turn left and a left turn there was both dangerous and illegal
0: so what about the whole idea of efficiency as a concept because I think as I said at the beginning that people assume that being efficient is a good thing But because you're efficient doesn't necessarily mean you're better. It just means you get it done faster, but it doesn't mean that the quality is better, that some things don't lend themselves to being efficient. Some things take more time.
2: Yes, that's another factor, that sometimes the pursuit of efficiency ignores some elements of of quality that, that are hard to measure, but that contribute a lot to the to the the enjoyment of life, so we can't really think of ourselves as as um, you know flesh and blood robots that are designed to, to optimize things. We we really have to think about the 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 other side of life, the ethical and aesthetic side of life
0: and so and so, when the dust all settles what 's the advice what 's the what 's the trap we 're trying to avoid, or what is it we 're trying to do that we 're not doing what 's the from your vantage point what 's the advice
2: My advice basically is not to outsource life to algorithms to be the user of algorithms yes, I think they 're great, and, and I think that they can really contribute a lot to the enjoyment of life but there is an obsession in some corners of Silicon Valley with doing everything as seamlessly and quickly as possible. And that, to me, cuts into a lot of the serendipity that has been so important in in long-term efficiency. Uh, that is that so, so many of these discoveries come when people might be doing something wasteful, people might be doing something that is not absolutely directly concerned with the future of the enterprise, but that might in turn lead to something that makes the enterprise even more efficient.
0: Well, in fact, there have been many cases of inventions where the inventor said, you know, the idea came to him when he wasn't working on it. it he was doing something else, unrelated.
2: That's right. Sticky notes are one of the most famous examples of that. A sticky notes that were developed by a uh, scientist at, at 3M, it was, it was really a, a kind of a play or an accidental discovery. And it wasn't that 3M had a project to, to start a, uh, a, a new multi-billion dollar business. It was, it was something that, that kind of came with free exploration.
0: Right, right, and I think that happens a lot. And I like your example when we first started talking about how, you know, sometimes you don't take the most efficient way to get there, and you end up on a route that takes you somewhere that, that's beautiful and lovely, and, and you're so glad you did it, but if, you were, if your goal was to be efficient, you would have completely missed it, and that, that seems to apply to so much in life.
2: Yes, in fact, I, I say for that reason that very often it's more efficient to do something in an old analog way. For example, psychologists have discovered that taking notes as opposed to using a keyboard device when you're listening to a lecture will lead to better retention and understanding of the lecture. And the reason is that the difficulty of summarizing what the lecturer is saying when you're taking the notes, formulating the points Uh, drawing arrows or whatever you do, that effort in actively dealing with the material is much more efficient in the long run than the supposed efficiency of capturing every word. When you capture every word, it's what they call fluency. You, You think you have it all, but you really don't have it all because you can't really necessarily repeat it and and summarize it in other words and that's the real test of whether you learn something not whether you have all the words down there but whether if somebody asks you to put it in your own words whether you understand it well enough to do it that way and that is much more real efficiency than just having everything down there as a text
0: so I guess the question still remains though that how do you know which road to take at any given time today are we going to do things more efficiently, or are today we're going to be a little more analog-like, slow things down, because maybe that would be better? How do you know what to do when?
2: I'm not opposed at all to doing new things, to experimenting with new technology, uh, to being an early adopter, which I don't happen to be, but I can understand the logic of that, and and I think that's, that's fine. But the danger, I think, comes in thinking of these things not as something to experiment with and to understand and to use actively, but as some kind of miracle that will offload your your mental effort and will remove you from active engagement with whatever you're doing. I think that's the danger, not the technology in itself. I think it's great to play around with these things, and I often do, but it's really the expectation that you bring to it.
0: Well, it, it... It almost seems like the, the you, you really can't slow the train down. That that there's this movement of you know bigger, faster, better, quicker, efficient gadgets, and it's really hard to jump off the train and say, well, let's take that, let's go this way instead.
2: You're you're right that there, there is a momentum in society that leads to the adoption of some technologies, and it's. It, can become very difficult to stay with the old one. There are some writers who remain loyal to the typewriter who feel they can work best with the typewriter, which is kind of amusing because when the typewriter came in, uh, there were many, many criticisms of the typewriter from people who were really devoted to to writing with, with pen and ink. So you have a kind of social necessity. For example, in the 1890s already, newspaper and magazine editors were insisting on typewritten versus handwritten copy, and the reason was that they had so many different writers, so many different submissions, that it was getting to be impossible to read people's handwriting. On the other hand, one of the interesting things has been that there is still a very vigorous market in, in pen and ink notebooks, and you can go into uh, just about any shop and, and uh, that sells stationery and see whole arrays of notebooks just because as i was saying there is something about capturing something in an analog form in writing that you can't get with a computer but some of the people or most of the people who buy them may have a variety of uh, of devices and they can use the devices for what they're good for but they will use the notebooks for another mode of thinking so i think of that as a as a good metaphor for for a larger trend we need to reserve a space where we can exercise analog thinking, where we can exercise our intuition.
0: On the other hand, though, technology does offer, often offers, a better way to do things and to get things done. And, and sometimes it is the better way.
2: Yes, and my point is not, again, not that we should reject these things, but that we should use them critically and at a distance. We should see them as tools not as self-contained lifestyles
0: well i like your message i like the fact that hearing this might make people stop and think you know efficient isn't always better and and maybe there's another way edward Tenner has been my guest he is a distinguished scholar at the smithsonian lemelson center for the study of invention and innovation and his book is called the efficiency paradox you'll find a link to his book at amazon in the show notes Thank you, Edward.
2: Thank you very much, Mike.
0: What makes a woman beautiful? Well, it turns out simplicity is a big part of it. Simple is beautiful, according to a study from the University of Paris. Researchers asked 156 men to rate 30 different female faces, and the results clearly showed that men preferred simpler faces. Why? apparently because the brain has an easier time processing simpler, plainer faces than faces with distinguishing characteristics. These findings do support the concept that first impressions are important and we do tend to subconsciously decide if someone is attractive or not before we consciously know it. This may also explain why simple brand logos are more popular than complex ones. For example, the Nike swoosh or the word Coke are simple images, so they're easier for us to process. Same thing with an emoticon. It's simple. The human brain prefers and is attracted to simple. And that is something you should know. If you hear a commercial on this podcast that interests you... Remember, all of the websites, promo codes, everything you need to check out what the advertiser is offering is always in the show notes for each episode. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.